España voló. Oh, oh ay, marinero navegó. Hi everyone, it's Manuela from Andrew's Family Fund visiting here with the Juvenile Law Center in the beautiful Philadelphia. And I'm here with their amazing team. So team, who is in the house? Uh, this is Sue. I'm in the house. I'm the CEO and I'm here just to spend some time with Manuela and hear from my wonderful team and add in where I can. Sue, can you remind me, what is the mission of the Juvenile Law Center? We fight for rights, dignity, equity, and opportunity for youth in the child welfare and justice system. We've been around since 1975. One of our founders, Marsha, is here with us. You'll meet her in a moment. I think there's a couple things, many things that distinguish us. Among those are that we work in both the child welfare and the justice system. And when we say the justice system, we mean both youth tried as adults as well as youth in the juvenile justice system. So we work in both the justice and the child welfare system. And we use a whole variety of strategies. And so while we're a legal office, we also use strategic communications and policy reform. We work hand in hand with our youth advocacy project. We do a lot of writing. We do research. We're multifaceted and in more than one system. Great. Hi, everyone. It's Marcia Hopkins. I'm the Senior Manager of Youth Advocacy Programs and Policy here. I work with our youth advocacy programs on issues of permanency and cost and fees. Hi, this is Rhea Shah. I'm Managing Director, and I do uh, work on our justice projects. I work mostly on youth and the adult system, the adult criminal justice system, as well as extreme sentencing for young people. And I do work on behalf of kids who exit the system to ensure that they don't have um, the stigma of their records attached to them. Hi, Marsha Levick. I'm Chief Legal Officer and co-founder of Juvenile Law Center. That means that I have a very long view. I've been working in this space since 1975, and I have a perspective both on how Juvenile Law Center has changed over the course of the last 40-some years, and also how the youth justice and child welfare systems have changed in this country. Hi, everyone. Uh, Andrew Keats. I'm a staff attorney um, here at Juvenile Law Center. I, my work focuses on economic justice, uh, combating fines and fees in the juvenile justice system, and also doing uh, record expungement work. Hi, I'm Kathy Maffa. I'm the Youth Advocacy Program Manager here at Juvenile Law Center, which means that I work exclusively on our youth advocacy program. I'm Katie Otto. I'm the Director of Communications, and I work to help build empathy for system-involved youth with our communications work and also to ensure that the issues affecting them and their lives aren't hidden in the shadows. So thank you all for being so gracious and joining this first introductory kind of pilot experiment of AFF out and around town on the trails. Um, we're just hoping you'll be able to share just a couple of jewels for your fellow colleagues doing this work, improving outcomes for vulnerable young people in the youth justice and foster care system. And so what is new? Like what's been happening over the last year? What are you super excited about that you want to kind of share with others that you think could also help them improve on their work in their respective communities. So we are really excited about our youth advocacy program. We're celebrating 10 years. 10 years! Year. Woo! 10 years YA. Yes. Yay. 
and our young people have worked on some really um, cool projects in the past year. So Broken Bridges la launched at the end of last year in December, focused on conditions, improving um, conditions of confinement for young people and keeping kids in our communities. And then last Tuesday, we launched Youth Fostering Changes Permanency Toolkit that addresses, you know, improving permanency for young people in the foster care system. And we've gotten a lot of awesome communication strategies that are coming out around that project. And then we're working on um, an ed project this year. Both youth in the juvenile justice and child welfare systems are working to improve uh, the reentry of youth from these systems back into schooling and schooling that's good for them. So many of our youth don't graduate, graduate late, graduate with an education that doesn't serve them well. Um, and we're working very closely with the other legal staff here at Juvenile Law Center on this education issue and also very closely with Education Law Center. So stay tuned on what will happen with this project in the next two months. One of the things that I think is uh, has been really exciting for us is that we're finally seeing the culmination of work that we've been doing for the last 15 years or so around sentencing of children in the criminal justice system. And as we saw that sentencing, harsh sentencing practices be struck down by the Supreme Court based upon developmental research and neuroscience, and we have really seen this developmental framework take hold, um, I think in all aspects actually, both of our justice and child welfare system. We're also seeing, especially in the last year, hundreds of men and women coming home from prison who were sentenced to life without parole, who thought they would die in prison, and they are coming back into their communities. They are giving back to their communities. They are leading productive lives. and. We are excited about this because these are individuals who have been convicted of the most serious crimes in this country. And we believe in our hearts that if we can bring home men and women who were convicted of homicide, we can bring anybody home. Mm. What have you all been seeing that is a little bit concerning or difficult in, in the landscape of the work that you're doing that you would like your colleagues to, to be aware of? I'm going to mention two emails that I've <laughs> yeah. seen in the last so it's not two a days. Tweet. It's, it's not a tweet. It's an email. <laughs> <laughs> this is two emails that came across our desk in the last two days, one from California and one from Indiana, both of which are reflected efforts at the legislative level to roll back extraordinary gains that we have made in the last 15 years around the treatment and prosecution of youth in the criminal justice system. And in California, one of our most progressive states in the country that has really been in the forefront of doing great work on behalf of kids, there is suddenly a movement there to roll back some of the extraordinary gains that they made uh, in the last year or so. And this morning in we got an email from our colleagues in Indiana where there is a similar response to a, a particular incident that happened in Indiana last year involving a 13-year-old in a school incident that has suddenly prompted a legislative concern that perhaps they should once again think about trying very young children as adults. And I think for us, we thought we solved this. We thought we had come out the other side. And seeing both of these emails back to back reminded me of how fragile our gains are and how we need to really be ever vigilant. Absolutely. I went to a panel with one of your colleagues, um, Danielle Surred from Common Justice, and um, you know she has her book coming out, I think, today or tomorrow, very fairly soon. And she mentioned um, the fact that the United States is like essentially a historical 
around like its policies and laws. Um, and so it reminds me, Marsha, of what you're talking about, that we have this very short memory around the things we thought we learned and solved for, and here we go regressing back mm-hmm. into approaches and narratives about young people and children that are, are, are harmful. So I, I hear you and appreciate you lifting that up. Is there anything else that you all are seeing that you're, you want your colleagues to be on the lookout for? So through our child welfare um, work and our permanency work, we're starting to see these waivers come through where states are trying to implement specific policies that would discriminate um, against individuals who might be of a different sexual orientation or for religious um, you know, moral convictions. And um, really, I think it is an issue that we need to talk about in terms of permanency that you know, so many places already talk about that we have limits on how many families that we have who can take youth. We know that you know, young people after the age of 13 or if they have more than one, more than two placements, I believe, decreases their chances of actually being adopted and getting permanent families. When we look at states that are trying to implement policies that would further discriminate against actually getting and having young people have access to supportive families, um, I think we really need to challenge that. And, you know, similar to what Marcia's saying, we're rolling back things. So we're talking about places that might have implemented some really great policies to get families. And now people are considering implementing these um, additional discriminatory policies that would further limit our opportunities for youth to gain permanency. And I think we need to be aware of our states and what's happening um, so that these don't keep coming up. But then how do we tackle this issue from a perspective that, um, you know, people understand that it limits young people's opportunities for families. And, um, you know, 20,000 youth age out every year without permanent connections. That number has been pretty consistent for a long time. So we're not really dwindling our numbers if we're continuing to create policies that would further limit our chances um, to have a real family. One of the things that we, you know, we all recognize, including any of our you know, colleagues that you're also supporting is that, you know, as a lot of gains have been made, they haven't necessarily influenced the disparities. And in fact, they may have exacerbated them. And Mm so we had a board meeting recently, and we were talking about some of the developmental science. And, you know, one of the issues that came up was how is that recognized and used for all youth or are only some youth thought to not have the same culpability and to sort of have the innocence and the, a right to childhood? Or is that true of all of black and brown youth equally and the same? Um, and so thinking about all the work that we do and what the, the race equity kind of implications are for it, what are the unintended consequences and just trying to sort of lead with some of those questions so that they're they're front of mind as we go through projects. Absolutely. And then the second thing I would mention kind of goes back to what Katie was saying when she introduced herself um, about, you know, making sure that these youth and these issues are not in the shadows. I think, making quotation marks, like in these times, uh, it's really hard to elevate issues. And I think there's been so much, conver- you know, as we speak, Kirsten Nielsen's testifying, there's been so much attention, and rightly so, on the children separated from their parents on the border. But it remains such a challenge to get the country to focus on, you know, 435,000 children in foster care mm-hmm. and 50,000 children incarcerated in the country. And a lot of efforts and a lot of sports personalities and others are really calling out for criminal justice reform and it's a struggle to get them to think about juvenile justice reform always having that challenge of elevating these issues and keeping them 
in, in front of the public and in front of decision makers. Sure, and I think what we've seen definitely on the nightly news with what's been happening in the immigrants' rights movement is just, you know, visibilization of, like, the way our nation is treating young people historically. And Marsha, you mentioned you have the long view. The longest, longest. <laughs> the longest view on Walnut Street in Philadelphia yes. around this work. I, you know, we, we do want to share words of upli- upliftment, but also want to be realists that we're in a movement and it's a, a long haul. What's your take on racial equity? Like to your point around um, the disparities remain or have even worsened, like what, is, what would make the difference? What do you think we need to be doing or minding that could actually move the needle? I think, first of all, it's important to to admit that it's static, that we haven't moved the needle. And I think some people aren't ready yet to accept that. We have been within the justice system. I think we have had an intentionality about focusing on it at least since... You know, certainly the 1980s with federal policy coming out of Washington, and yet we haven't moved the needle. So let's first of all accept that. And then I think we also have to recognize that um, the reason why we can't move the the needle is because our structures are inherently racist and our systems are inherently racist. And the challenge that we have presented to ourselves in doing this race equity work is to really examine how we can inject a focus on eliminating uh, racial bias, intentional and implicit, uh, and racially disparate outcomes in every piece of advocacy that we engage in. So that whether we're focusing on what our youth advocacy programs are doing, what our litigation is aimed at, what our policy advocacy is working on, our communication strategies, it's always being attentive to where the structure itself inhibits our ability to make a change. And I think in particular, when we think about the justice system, the, the perpetuation of a carceral state that continues to favor incarceration over diversion and community placement and restorative justice, we will always target people of color first. So we have to undo some of those very incredibly entrenched ahistorical. I think that the Danielle's book that you're talking about, this need to have a reckoning with violence and how we think about violence in this country, not in a way that isolates, but in a way that engages. Until we are fully able to do that, we will continue to see very little progress. So what can what can the field count on you for? You mentioned earlier all of this phenomenal resources you're putting out that people can go to to lift up their local work. Can you just say briefly a little bit about the scorecard and the other resources? Sure. So we work with partners all over the country, and we um, tend to do a lot of um, publications and provide resources that look at the state of the law on a specific issue across the country. So one example is a a scorecard on juvenile records where we looked at the laws on confidentiality of records and expungement of records and scored the states against each other and against our models for what would be best practices for ensuring record protection so that children, when they're exiting the juvenile justice system, have opportunities to get jobs and have housing and go into higher education programs 
And so that's one example of the kind of work that we do that really allows us to look at the grand landscape and provide information and support to individuals who are looking to reform the laws in their state as well. That's great. Is that online? It is online. It's jlc.org slash juvenile records. Great. And was there another resource you mentioned? In the child welfare system, we have a national extended foster care review that similarly captures information about extended foster care in all 50 states, and that's also an online resource. Great. And then you also mentioned you are have this unique model for how to support and train up young people impacted by the justice and foster care system to be advocates and help push policies locally and nationally. Just curious if you could talk a little bit about the model and the, what is it, Wednesdays and Thursdays when they're going to come yes. <laughs> trampling through the door? Uh, so our, our youth advocacy program really elevates the experience, the expertise, the voices of young people in both the child welfare and juvenile justice systems. And we're talking about resources. You go to our website again, it's jlc.org slash youth advocacy. You'll see Uh, Almost 10 years worth of tools created by our young people who can really influence local reform, state reform, national reform. Um, Really the goal of this program is to, you know, it's housed in Philly, but a lot of the toolkits can be be used nationwide, is to really have young people um, break down their experience, look for where interventions could have been made, better advocacy could have been made to really improve their experience in the child welfare and juvenile justice system and improve their outcomes as well. That's awesome. So my boots are getting a little bit itchy and they're ready to move on to the Mm -hmm. next group we're visiting with. I'm wondering if you could leave our fellow colleagues in the field, the organizers, the advocates, the legislators, the civil servants, the funders, with a word of inspiration. So what keeps you in this work? Why should we continue to do what we are doing in service of young people? Who keeps you in this work? Or what memory or what what dream do you have that keeps you continuing to get up every day and do this work? Outrage. Outrage. That's a power word. Right on. Working with young people. Their stories are so inspirational. One of our youth said the other day, like, I just don't know why people don't ask us because I have a lot of uh, suggestions to give you for um, <laughs> making change. So, you know, I think they have a lot to say and they bring me here every day. It is about the young people. It's about making sure every child is permitted to have a childhood and a, a hopefully a full and uh, productive life, but also so that every child has, has an opportunity. The experiences, the successes that, that many of us have have enjoyed in our in our lives, and we know there are large populations that that are being institutionalized or being blocked from uh, from moving forward and, and escaping these systems that that continue to sort of both discriminate and and oppress. But why is that important to you personally? To me personally, yeah. um, well, f- for one, uh, I'm I'm a father. I, I have mm-hmm. a child, um, and and but but more so, I've been working, litigating for over ten years, um, and the idea that that justice is, seems to be preserved only for some people uh, is yet enraging. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's uh, that that we, despite uh, a country that that values quality, freedom. Um, uh, 
the American dream that in, in reality when you watch it in practice and you watch it in courtrooms and you see our systems, it, it only applies to a small percentage of the population and, and a large percentage is being locked out of, uh, of that. You've had that front row seat. Yeah. yeah. I did want to add just one thing. As we celebrate this 10 years of YA, we did launch a youth advocacy sustainers program, and that's so that everybody, no matter what level they could give at, could be a part of supporting the youth in their work, even if it was at a small dollar donation a month, just so that also youth know that there are adults who will be behind them to follow their lead. So anyone who's interested is welcome to, to look at that because I think we're pretty excited about it and we're excited about giving people a chance to support these Ten young years. people's leaders. Yeah. So it's where on our website go? too. They yeah. can go to jlc.org slash youth dash advocacy. That's right. Great. And I would love to add, I know there's a lot of anger and rage that kind of keeps us in this work because we want to make change, but personally what kind of keeps me in this work is when there are these like little accomplishments that kind of show us that there can be a change because if it was all not moving at all, I think all of us would get really burnt out very quickly, even though we are already kind of burnt out. Um, <laughs> but seeing that there can be these like these little and huge changes by our advocacy that keeps me interested. It keeps me here because I know that if this one thing can change, then a lot more things can change as well. Yeah, so go to their website and, and support their 10-year anniversary and also their capacity to not burn out, right? So let's support this great organization. Anybody else, YLC State? Did everyone get to share? I, I think there's it's a different story for each person. I mean, I think something moved each of us to go into this line of work. And then, I mean, I, I feel like I'm surrounded with people whose values I share, and they're the people from whom I want to sort of receive applause. In other words, um, I think the work we do um, is often sort of really difficult, really uphill, two steps forward, one step back, in the shadows, all of that. But the people whose opinions I really value, sort of the people around this table and our colleagues in the field, when they share success, it, it's really, really meaningful. And I was with my buddy last week, and she was coming back from uh, one of their meetings. It wasn't exactly a speaking engagement. I think it was more of a meeting, and she was really frustrated because she was speaking to someone, you know, who sort of runs something in the city, and the person was saying, talking about all the limitations um, of the person's position. And this youth, you know, our youth advocate sort of challenged that person and said, I think you can do more. Mm -hmm. And I think we all kind of feel like that. We can talk to you about sort of limitations and capacity forever and ever, but we all still feel like we can do more. Mm -hmm. And so we keep doing more. Right on. So we'll end with that. Let's do more. <laughs> Thank you, JLC. Thank you. Thank you. Center. Thank you.